Welcome to True Talk. Uh, good morning uh, to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. Summer is traveling. It's just me today in the studio live. And thank you to all our listener supporters who supported us last week during our fun drive, making um, not only meeting our goal, but exceeding it um, by a lot. So I think we raised over $5,000 in just one hour, which is just incredible. Thank you so much for all your support. This allows us and the station to continue to bring you awesome programming. Um, so please continue your support, and thank you so much uh, for that. On today's program, we're going to be speaking to um, about political prisoners, uh, especially those impacted by the war on terrorism. Um, it's now in, in its uh, 20th year, and how is that impacting um families of political prisoners or families of those who are alleged to have been involved in terrorism, whether um, and many of them, as you'll find out, actually were, did not do any actual terrorism. Um, and then also your phone calls. We'll be right back. This is True Talk on WMNF. <laughs> كنت متعود ان اسمع وافوت بس المره دي قلبي هدوس عالي غير لي فراسي ايز العيش بلا بيك خليك ناسي ليام بتور توريك غير لي فراسي ايز العيش بلا بيك خليك ناسي خليك ناسي على فكرة ناسي اسمي كل يوم اللي في تكلمنا لو رحت قلت لهم اني كنت في يوم حبيبك محدش هيصدقك كله هيمشي ويسيبك سلام مش هسلم كلام مش هتكلم بتلعبي على مين الاسطوره والمعلم قمه الغباء انك تفتكر انك في بالي ولا في خيالي من الاخر
Welcome back to Truth Talk on WMNF 88.5 with uh, Summer and Ahmed Summer is traveling. That was um, a song by Saad Lamjarid. Um, I think he's Moroccan. In Say is the song. Um, so joining me, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be speaking about uh, the impact of the war on terror on uh, uh, families of alleged terrorists, uh, many of them who actually didn't commit any actual terrorism, and uh, political prisoners. And joining me is uh, uh, Neda Debes from uh, CCF. Is that how, how I pronounce your last name? Yeah, you got it. I mean, in Arabi, it's Debes, but... That's, that's the closest you'll get, maybe, for others. Okay. Debes. Not Debes. Because there's also no, Debes. 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 Yeah, there's Ayn? Debes. Yes, it's Ayn. Okay. Because in English, you have it as an I. Yeah, I mean, well, what, what, else, what are we supposed to write instead of the Ayn? The I apostrophe? <laughs> I, I Okay, I totally agree, but I guess that's just there's the There's no apostrophe, really. And they can't really put an apostrophe in your passport or your ID. Like, oh, I think that that's the issue. Yeah, maybe that's why mm-hmm. there's no apostrophe. Okay, so just for our listeners who are joining us um, that may not be familiar with what we're talking about, we're talking about my guest's last name, which is Arabic originally, but in English it's written different because one of the Arabic letters is not in the English uh, alphabet. Just like my name, Ahmed, there's no ha sound in English, so we substitute with an H and then it just becomes silent. So most people... Just pronounce it Ahmed, which is not really Ahmed. Because when they try to say Ahmed, they actually make it like a ha sound, like Ahmed, which is, that's not my name. So it's, growing up, it was annoying. And then, of course, you have the, uh, you know, racist kids that will make fun of uh, names like that as if they're making some spitting sounds or. <laughs> yeah, growing, growing up Arab in America. Um, welcome to True Talk. This is not my venting uh, hour about how I grew up, but this is uh, now uh, we'll, we're going to be speaking to Anita Derbez from CCF, uh, CCF, the Coalition for Civil Freedoms. Um, Nida, or Nida, welcome to our program, finally. Thank you so much for having me. I've been wanting to have you on for a while um, since uh, you wrote a... Uh, part of this report um, called, what was the name of the report? The Terror Trap. <laughs> yeah, The Terror Trap, uh, marking the 20th anniversary of the war on terrorism. And uh, you wrote one of the chapters in there. I've been wanting to have you on, but our schedules couldn't uh, happen. Uh, but you're finally here, so better late than never. Um, and right. I guess technically we haven't, hasn't been a year, so it's still the 20th anniversary of the war on terrorism. Um, What is, it talks about political prisoners. What's a political prisoner? That's a good question. So a political prisoner, I guess, as defined by CCF, is someone who was targeted by the government and criminally prosecuted and imprisoned due to political beliefs, um, cultural identity, or their activism. Um, And I guess you could say more explicitly, um, the the political prisoners that we work with are ones that have been convicted of terrorism. Um, but yeah, so I guess it's a vast majority of the, the prisoners I want to say that we work with are all under the umbrella. Um, okay. And so 
does a political prisoner do they can somebody be a political prisoner uh, whether they committed or did not commit a crime or whether they've been convicted for one or not? I mean, I guess in order to be in prison, you have to have been convicted, right? Right, right. I mean, that's a good question. So I always say, um, and it's really um, just a belief of mine, that all prisoners are political prisoners um, in some way, shape, or form. I just think that really everything in life can be defined by politics or has some political origin. Um, and therefore, I, I do think that the reasons that most prisoners are in prison do have like a political basis to them. Um, but that being said, I think like for the sake of um, our work and like trying to differentiate between like what actually, you know, is a political prisoner um, and whatnot, it's kind of more defined by um, people who, who did not really convict the crime that they're um, being uh, accused of or whether or not they, let's say they did conv uh, commit the crime, the crime is actually not one that is meant to be um, a punishable uh, crime or offense um, in a political context. It's more of a just the government is, you know, crying about their um, their power and is trying to make sure that they they maintain it and and you know so that that's what what happens. Do you have any information about the number of political prisoners, or at least the ones you're? T are you covering all political prisoners in America, or no? Or are you so just focused covering. on a specific mm -hmm. segment? So we're focused on a very specific segment of political prisoners, um, and it's ones who have been convicted in, um, you know, some po most or m overwhelming majority are post 9-11 convictions. Very, there are actually some that are pre 9-11, um, but their majority, you know, you could say uh, people convicted of certain charges um, based off of their cultural and religious identity. Um, and that being, you know, Islam and um, being of a certain ethnicity that also like puts you in that racial racialized identity. Um, and also, as far as the number uh, goes, actually, so we have um, right now our, our list fluctuates, you know, depending because people, new people are, are added or go in and some people get released. Right now, we have around 245 prisoners on our list um, of prisoners that we work with directly. But we actually have a database of over a thousand um, prisoners who have been convic uh, convicted of, of these charges in preemptive prosecution cases. Um, so, yeah, so when you say, okay, um, you, this is another word you're introducing here. What's a preemptive prosecution? Yeah, so preemptive prosecution, basically, um, it's like a tactic used by the FBI. Of course, the FBI defines preemptive prosecution completely differently, and they frame it as something that's, you know, really good for you um, because you there's a legitimate fear um, as far as they're concerned. Versus what preemptive prosecution actually is, is going after people before any crime has been committed. So, um, so that's kind of like, uh, it's kind of, mm -hmm. sorry, it's, it's kind of like the minority report. There's something, I don't know, there's something jingling over there on your side. What is that? Oh, really? Yeah. I is, have no idea. Do you have some bangles or something? I don't. Oh, okay. Do I? I don't know. Maybe the. Is it better? Yeah, it's better. I mean, it's not happening all the time. It's just maybe when you move, oh, is actually, it the microphone? No, I, I think it's, it's, no, it's the chair. Now I get it. Okay, no. Oh, okay. We, we solved it. <laughs> yeah, radio can be really sensitive to people's, uh, like, what is that in the background? Okay. <laughs> Again, sorry to cut you off, but um, that's kind of like this movie. I don't know if you, I think Tom Cruise was in it. It's called The Minority Report, where some force, police force in the future, 
arrests people before they actually commit the crime because of these psychics that predict when the crime is going to happen. So are these people getting arrested before they actually commit the crime? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because essentially, these are in order for it to be a preemptive prosecution case, it means that no crime actually ever happened. And not just that, but also more than like an overwhelming majority, I want to say nine times out of 10, there's like some type of informant involved, meaning that not only would no crime have not happened, like these ideas of like maybe committing a crime or maybe like uh, creating some type of plan that might or might not be executed would not have even necessarily been like been there. So it's essentially like you have an FBI informant that's introduced into this person's life that starts to like, you know, plant like ideas. They start to manipulate. They get really close. Um, they, they, you know, use all of these really, really like nasty and disgusting tactics um, that get them uh, get convince them basically to like try to go along with a certain plan. So you're um, saying the, the, the FBI has. Mm-hmm. So you're saying the yeah. plan itself is not even the persons. It's it's introduced by the government. The yeah, idea. most. Mm-hmm, yeah, pretty much. That's yeah, definitely. That's what's happening. I think like they they prey on very vulnerable people. And let's say there's like you know um, you have like youth that are just really angry about what's going on in Iraq or what's going on in Syria. Um, and then, you know, they, they, you know, try to, to relate with them on that front and then say, Hey, like, isn't this so like infuriating? We need to do something about it. And then they like, you know, essentially try to push them into this corner. A lot of these cases, the, 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 you know, young men or even like a lot, some women, will try to push against it but you know like i said they're in vulnerable positions okay can so you give me really can you give me an example it. of a vulnerable position where the government was you know i guess convinced or manipulated somebody to be mm-hmm. involved in what i'm assuming to be terrorism that yeah. would not have that they mm-hmm. would not have actually thought of you know on their own or went along with it of course. Yeah. So, um, for example, I mean, it, there's many, many cases like this. Um, there's one prisoner that I work with. Um, he grew up in a fatherless home. Uh, you know, it's just his mom and his sisters, um, definitely did not have this like positive male influence in his house, um, you know, to, to help and support him. Uh, and so obviously like he's, uh, going out and like seeking like these like, you know, strong relationships that he can have with like other men and other, you know, mentors who, you know, can hopefully like fill that role for him. Uh, mind you, like this person is just in a, in a very vulnerable position. Okay. How old um, was he? Where, where, what, I mean, what state or what, what part? Very of the young, very young. I think this is out of Michigan, but I'm not entirely sure to be honest um, okay. as far as which state but he was very young this is like pre-18 and um there's many many cases where they do start out before like you know at 16 um 15 where someone is is talking to them and these relationships can last up to years um, you, and this then, is like kind of like uh, mm-hmm. grooming are they're grooming them oh yeah this is like oh, uh, you know when you when you hear like adults and i'm assuming the ones that are doing this uh you know this relationship or talking are adults uh, you're saying preying on young, vulnerable individuals, mm-hmm. uh, teenagers. Um, it just reminds me of like you know people that are um, yes in in the sense of uh, you know the whole Me Too and how people are grooming young women. 
Um, so you're saying this is a form of grooming, but in a different when, way. 100%. I think that like the word grooming is, is a perfect um, term to use. We actually even have one case where um, it was a much, much older man. And this is, you know, a child that he actually moved in with. Um, and they lived together for some time. And so it, um, and, and the, the informant, that's not the only case. The informant was li- like moved in with the, ch- with the teenager yes. or the other way around? Yes. No. So um, actually that's a, that's a, my, a detail that I'm not 1000% clear okay. on. But they I ended up living they, together somehow. Exactly. Um, I think that, you know, he, um, he was a young kid. I, he wasn't um, necessarily a minor. I think he was like between his, um, uh, between 18 and early 20s. Okay. Um, and I guess like mo- possibly moved out of the house. But I do know that, yeah, like th- there is this one particular really disturbing case where the informant actually like moved in with this kid and he was, you know, much older in his like late 40s. And you're talking about a kid in his like, like early adult life where they're still trying to figure mm. figure out what they want to be and who they are. Okay, so let's just go back to the case that you were first telling me about the, you know, mm-hmm. what happened with that uh, person that was probably yeah, so from Michigan, it, but I'm sure you'll give me the information later. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, like, you know, they were approached by, um, you know, an informant that has made himself out to be like a community member has been in the community when you say community um, member which community like he's part of what community the masjid so like that's and that's usually like you know where you'll find them the masjid is uh is a mosque masjid is arabic for mosque okay so yeah he, he starts going out to the mosque he meets up with a young vulnerable person and starts grooming them to do what Mm-hmm. So basically, I at first they really just start um, to say like, oh, um, they start showing them videos of like things that are happening to uh, people in Iraq or things happening in Palestine and just saying like, don't like, doesn't this like infuriate you? And so it, they just kind of like build a rapport um, with the with the young man um, and it, they kind of go from there. But essentially they kind of get, it gets to a point eventually after they've like established this trust um, where they start saying, you know what, actually I can't take it anymore. And this is the informant talking. I feel like we need to do something about this. Like this isn't okay. Um, Which is like what happened in this case um, where the informant said, that's, you know, that's it. And something needs to happen and convinces this kid that a plan needs to happen. Of course, a lot of the time, which is um, many, many of the prisoners expressed this to me. They say that they didn't want to go along with the plan. They felt pressured and like manipulated into it and even try to back out or try to like essentially like, let's say agree, but say like, wait, like we don't actually have to hurt people though, right? Like maybe we can do something like that's less extreme than that. Maybe we can just do something that sends a message. Without- so they try to back out yeah. from what amount, what seems like a heavy pressure, peer pressure mm-hmm. or adult pressure and um, what 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 does the informant do? Like they'll go harder. Um, so when you say yeah. informants, are these people that are they're basically pretending to be part of the community? Are they even Muslims? Uh, sometimes I mean, or like who are these informants? Yeah, unfortunately, sometimes they are Muslim. A lot of the times, um, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers or statistics, but a lot of times. They'll be posers, you know, not Muslims, um, just simply like, you know, an FBI agent that um, familiar, makes themselves very familiar with the religion and culture to, you know, get in. Um, I don't know if, if the running joke of the CIA agents that are taking Arabic classes in college and it's the split mm-hmm. between, 
you know, Arab kids who are trying to like learn their language and then also the CIA agents who are trying to like, you know, join join whatever to, to combat terrorism. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, oftentimes they, they, they can be like Muslims and Arabs in the community. I also want to say that even the informants will usually be people who actually have criminal records and are like in a bind. So they'll kind of go to someone in the community and say, mm. hey, like we have this on you, like you can help us and it'll be like a two way street. Like look at how much you benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, so usually they so the informants themselves could also be vulnerable or they have something on them and mm-hmm. they kind of cornered them to do something that yeah. they themselves may not be doing. So they're turning like basically community mm-hmm. members. I can imagine that this will create a lot of mistrust in the community. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I also... If this happens, like, wanna... you know, in, mm-hmm. in communities, uh, what is the impact yeah. that it has on communities when, when things like that happen? Definitely a lot of fear um, and, you know, a very warranted paranoia. Uh, and so people tend to keep their heads down, not fight back, um, you know, on, on these fronts just because they want to pass off as the good Muslim who's not, you know, not stirring any pots or, or making any type of ruckus. Okay. Um, let me just, I'll, I want to get back to that in a minute, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in knowing more about you. And if you're just joining us, um, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. I'm speaking to Neda. Their best. She is from an organization called CCF, um, Coalition for Civil Freedoms. We're talking about the work that they're doing to advocate for political prisoners, but not all political prisoners, the ones that, that you are advocating for or are working with or focused on are ones who are uh, mostly from Muslim background that are accused of terrorism or were part of these, uh, what you call, preemptive uh, prosecutions. And um, how, I mean, somebody sent an email in saying, you know, how is this different from MAGA, he calls them MAGA dummies, who were arrested on January 6th, riot mm-hmm. at the Capitol, claiming to be political prisoners. I guess nobody really groomed them. I, I, maybe that's... Actually, that's debatable. <laughs> oh, really? So, so what happened? Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I'm not too familiar or clear on the facts, but I do know that there actually is room for like, um, there are reports of informants who actually did instigate um, some of the people who were there that day. Um, I do know that like, you know, there there was FBI amongst the um, the crowd mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, I do want to say that. Um, Would you, you say know, like as, so? I mean, but I mean, as, okay. Mm-hmm. So in that situation where you have riot provocateurs, mm-hmm. these are law enforcement individuals that you know we've heard since um, you know, especially um, the protests that happened in different places. Whether it was against mm-hmm. the war in Iraq and other places, you'd have these uh, law enforcement agents that blend in and pretend to be protesters, and then they would start rioting they would yeah. start the violence mm-hmm. um we you know even in black lives matters uh, protests we heard about law enforcement you know pretending to be part yep. of the crowd and instigating violence and then you know to try to justify as a pretext uh but that seems to me a little bit different than you know simply going after somebody to try to convict them on terrorism um i mean a lot yeah. of these uh, january 6 
protesters or rioters, yeah, not everybody there was going to, you know, take over the capital, but it seems like the evidence has come out that there was an organized mm-hmm. effort to try to yes. stop the certification. So maybe that's uh, going a little bit, yeah. So that's, I, I think that's where the difference is. But let me just get back to mm-hmm. who, about you. Um, tell us a little bit more about you. Why are you involved in this work? And how did you yes. decide to, to join? Because it doesn't seem like you know something really popular. I don't think you, people just wake up and say, <laughs> let me just go and try to defend alleged terrorists. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good question. Um, so I guess when I was a, a really young kid, I think I was about eight years old, um, my cousin was convicted in one of these cases um, out of Toronto, um, Canada. And I guess that left a very lasting impression on me. Um, my, you know, it was, I had to really fight to, to know the details. My parents were not very forthcoming um, as far as like letting me in on what was happening. Um, and it wasn't until I got older that I really started to like understand what so happened. Wh- when was he arrested or, or how old were you? It was, I was eight years old and it was in 2006, I think. So um, at eight years old, you had the consciousness, I guess, or like the awareness to ask, where's my cousin? Like, or what happened? And be like trying to get, I mean, you know, dig at the was, truth. What kind of eight year old were you? <laughs> It was all over the news. Oh, it was? Um, okay. Oh, yeah. So it was like, it was everywhere and it was a really big deal. Um, my family like was kind of going into hiding at that point. Um, so I like, obviously, I mean, kids are, are, are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Mm. <laughs> they know when something's going on. So, I mean, I didn't necessarily understand the details. I didn't, I just knew something really bad happened. And so what happened with you your know, cousin? So basically, I mean, he was um, essentially approached and groomed by an an informant um, in the community. Um, He uh, grew up like pretty scattered. I want to say like his dad kind of were Palestinian. Um, You know, his mom is actually Greek. And so his his parents took him to Saudi Arabia for some time um, to like learn Arabic um, and and about Islamic studies and all that and then moved them to Greece and then Canada. And so he was kind of jerked around a lot, very confused um, child, um, you know, not not the, the best um, upbringing. So he's kind of just really looking for belonging and, and, and a home um, as far as, you know, okay. going out there. Yeah. And then? So what happened? Oh, and then, yeah. So um, he was actually married very young. Um, he, he, like, was in the community. And so this, this informant, essentially, um, it was him and um, 17 other young men. Um, who were a part of, I guess, a part of this this whole grooming process that they they got. So this guy was was much older and was convincing them to kind of go along with this plan slash plot um, that that he had concocted. Okay, so when you say uh, what what did they actually con- concoct and what were they being groomed to do? What was the actual yeah. crime, alleged so, crime, and you know, yeah. It was like a bombing of, um, and I'm not Canadian, and I've been to Canada, Canada very few times. Um, it was to to bomb. It was like I think like the Toronto Square or some. It was like a very like very big public space is is what it was, um, and that was like essentially the the alleged plan um, that they were trying to follow through on. Okay, and uh, but did they actually did anybody do any crime? 
No, no, so, no. Nor, nor did they even have the the ability to actually like to, to carry out the crime. Essentially, like the the, the um, government was the informant was planning on supplying everything to them. Like they were kind of just like going along with with it, um, more or less. But they were just confused children, um, more or less. My my cousin was on the older end of these kids, which mind you, he was like. 17, 18 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't actually convict him until he was 20. Um, he was married and he had a daughter. Actually, she was less than a year old when, when they took him. So he was married um, at 16 already? No, he was married at, I think it, he got married at 19. Um, okay. By 20, he he um, he like had, his kid was almost a year old at that time. I think he had his kid at, at 19. Yeah, I looked it up on uh, Wikipedia, the 2006 Ontario terrorism plot. Is that what it's referring to? Mm-hmm. It refers to yeah, the plot, yeah. plotting of a series of attacks against targets in southern Ontario, Canada, and the June 2nd. That's the t- Toronto 18 case. Okay. So the greater Toronto actually, area, which resulted in the arrest of 14 yeah. adults and four youth. These individuals have been characterized as having been inspired by Al-Qaeda. They didn't actually commit any actual um they didn't actually carry uh, through on mm-hmm. any of this uh, alleged crime i guess they use some of them use the the entrapment uh defense saying they were entrapped yeah. but mm-hmm. they some failed of, did, of course yeah and i want to say my, my cousin didn't use that defense um mm-hmm. just because of its failure um and a lot of people or many people don't i, I mean i think in canada it's slightly different than here um uh, here we've kind of built this support network um, and we're, we're seeing it go in Canada. I don't think anything like CCF exists there. Um, you know, my, my cousin was definitely extremely impressed to, to, to know that this was a thing here. Okay, so this happened when you were eight, started with your cousin and this had an impact. So how did that lead you to the work that you're doing now? I mean, your parents yeah. seemed to like they, <laughs> they were trying to hide information from you. They were going into hiding and you were trying to seek out the truth of what's going right. on okay so yeah continue telling me like right. how you ended up here so um at 10 years old my, my parents like up and moved us to dubai whoa so I, I lived okay. yeah <laughs> it's happening a lot in your family right no i, I agree it was a very turbulent childhood <laughs> to say the least but um then we moved to abu dhabi um, and I still remember being in my parents' room. I was like maybe like 16 at the time um, at that point. And the TV was just on this like random channel. Like it wasn't even like some well-known like channel or whatever. It was like a channel out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I see my cousin's face what? on the screen. Yeah. When you <laughs> were how old? Like, I was 16, I think. Okay, yeah. So eight years 16. later, you see your cousin's screen, you know, image on tv yeah. okay <laughs> and i think that really um i i feel like i had more or less i would think about him from time to time i'd ask questions from time to time but like nothing that really went answered um and nothing that really was like helpful i guess for for understanding what happened i see this like whole they're doing like this entire segment it was in arabic too um and it was about like you know my cousin and um you know it was going through all the profiles of the 18 um and uh, my cousin was considered the the ringleader um from from you know there was two ringleaders he was one of them is like what they what they accused him of and um i think that was really i saw that and i had 
I was 16, so I was much older and I had a bunch of questions and I just started doing research and I was like, okay, like what happened? I feel like now I'm like old enough to actually um, mm -hmm. try, try to figure this out. Um, and so I feel like I kind of did and that was really like a part of my political development. Um, yeah, and then eventually I was able, I moved to the, back to the United States for college. I went to UC Berkeley. Um, oh, and a bastion of conservatism. <laughs> of course i know it was so <laughs> so that's where you got so radicalized at berkeley i mean i want to say it happened before then um I when i say i'm just I saying, i'm being sarcastic <laughs> you won't radicalize in the sense of uh, violent radicalization not, but oh no no you know dedicated to like um yes liberal yes. ideas or social justice social or, justice know, this, this, yeah so did you find I mean, a did you find a sense of belonging at berkeley not really actually not at all hmm. um i mean i think like berkeley was really tough on me just because i feel like berkeley has this reputation for being very liberal but it's really like liberal except for like these big and hard-hitting issues like when it comes to palestine when it comes so to it's like soft liberalism like basically uh eat, you know like uh, let's about the environment and stuff but not mm -hmm, okay mm -hmm. yeah you know the stuff that's cute and fun to to oh you know, so it wasn't even <laughs> like liberal and it wasn't you know it's not what we were looking for. By the way, if you're just joining us, joining us this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. I'm speaking to Neda Dabes. Uh, she is an activist and works for an organization called the Coalition for Civil Freedoms. We're speaking about uh, political prisoners and um, as it relates to the war on terrorism and uh, preemptive prosecutions and a report that they had put out called the Terror Trap. And right now I'm talking, uh, we're talking about how Netta ended up uh, doing the work that she's doing. Okay, so you're at Berkeley. It's not hardcore enough or it's not, <laughs> the, the student body there is not taking on the issues that you care about. They're going after, I guess, would you call them low-lying fruits? Kind of. I mean, honestly, I would hardly really even call it that. I would say like it was just anything that, that, like their, because their their views on this weren't necessarily like I think that a lot of them believe that um, you know this is actually not necessarily up for debate. Where when like, you say this, are, what, what is this? What are you talking about? Like um, as far as terror, like so these people are convicted of terrorism. Um, it sounds like legitimate to me. Is is really the the response that, that like they couldn't really necessarily comprehend that that this is not well not what the government says it is. Mm. Um, you know, and then even also on the issue of Palestine, um, there was always the, you know, um, progressive except for Palestine um, uh, thing where people are progressive. But then when it comes to the issue of Palestine, it becomes it's a, you know, it, there's two sides and it's a very difficult like it's a, we can't really understand it. We can't wrap our hands around it. There's too much to mm -hmm. like know to be able to, to make any decisions or, or conclusions. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I was confronted with that. So what else did you do during your uh, so how did you deal with that? What did you get involved when that, you know, I guess groomed you into a social mm -hmm. justice warrior? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I would call myself that. But moreover, I think I just was really seeking some type of environment where I felt like what I believed um, was actually like, you know, also believed or also um, perpetuated. And I eventually found the Teach in Prison program, um, which is a great program where they send in tutors into St. Quentin, um, at, you know, uh, up in, in NorCal. And so I started teaching at St. Quentin, um, you know, and, and, and tutoring. 
Uh, the prisoners. Oh, yeah. Uh, what is what? Are, what do you? What is your thing that you're infatuated with prisoners? <laughs> I don't think I'm infatuated. I think I'm more over. I believe that they're some of the most vulnerable people um, in our society, and they're the most forgotten. So it's more of just like this. I want to say maybe overcompensation for um, how much work is lacking in this in this specific area. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, that may, yeah. Sounds sounds fair, but I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think I was just kind of making it as a joke. I didn't want to offend you with that <laughs> comment, but not, I mean, not usually like young people at the age of sixteen or twenty or going to college, you're not like you know just thinking how can I help uh, prisoners or okay. So you started tutoring, teaching. What were you teaching them? I was tutoring mostly GED subjects. So basically, um, uh, over there. I'm not sure where else they do this, but um, if you pass your GED, you get seven months off your prison sentence. Okay. Um, and a lot of, you know, some of the guys there were actually more advanced than just their GED. They were pursuing higher education. Um, so I was also tutoring in like biology and math and like, you know, calculus. I had to do a lot of like refreshing and, and studying myself to be able to, you know, I've, I've always loved teaching. I've, I've actually had many teaching gigs um, in the past, but yeah, so I was able to to kind of help them with that. I also did a lot of um, writing or like, you know, helping them like as, with their essay writing. And um, m- one of my favorite things to do was to help them with their like uh, parole hearing, like, you know, letter to the parole or as far as like, you know, them uh, pleading their case to the parole board, um, trying to, to get out on parole. So that was also a really cool thing. Was I this a paid do. thing or was it? Oh, no, not at all. Really, you spent all this time volunteering for free? Yep, I would be up at 4 a.m. once to twice a week um, to drive at 6, 5.30 a.m. Because, yeah, there's like, you know, traffic and toll that we had. We would pay for the toll. You pay um, your own you know, toll. I, yeah, like I'd use my car, my own car, um, drive there. How long is the drive? Like, it, it's like 30 minutes um, from where I lived. And I would also pick up um, three other tutors um, with me. So like we would go together, it would be like the four of us. Um, and, you know, w- it was organized in shifts. So each day had its own shift. And I was like, you know, the driver for uh, mo- every Monday. But I think I would pick up an extra shift um, sometimes here and there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I haven't looked into uh, volunteer programs in prisons around this area, but I'm sure they also exist. I do. One of my friends that I know that's in Ocala actually started a um like a Toastmaster in the prison, and then they started doing debates or speeches mm-hmm. or a debate club. So I guess uh, those things do uh, exist, yeah. uh, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody's getting involved. Okay, let's just, because I'm, yeah. we're kind of just for the interest of time, uh, I want to just, how did you make going from volunteering in the prisons to your work now at CCF? Yeah, so I think that, that that work was extremely like impactful and influential in my life and I kind of realized that this is this is something I, I really want to do, you know, moving forward. And so I graduated and I was just, you know, looking and seeking for what roles I can do and then I stumbled upon CCF and um the position of prisoner and family support coordinator. And um like I say, it's it was a match made in heaven or hell, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so now you're in this role. Um, let's just get back to your, you know, work at CCF. And um, again, if you're joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF. I'm speaking to Neda Derbez. She's the 
a prisoner and family support coordinator at the Coalition for Civil Freedoms. And CCF, um, it says here, was formed by former political prisoners, for political prisoners, and their impacted family members. Um, and it's been around since 2010. And we already talked about, you know, um, the preemptive prosecutions. Some people also call it entrapment, but it's specifically targeting uh, people. The ones that you work with are ones with um, Muslim backgrounds, and it usually um, involves allegations of terrorism or alleged terror plots. And you're saying that these terror plots are usually designed by the government, and they're basically... It's almost like you know they they have a movie plot and then they're just looking yep. for the the roles to fill. Yeah, um, pretty much. Um, it's uh, produced by the U.S. government. And then and then no crime actually takes place. So how do they actually arrest them if a crime didn't take place? Like what? Well, so basically that they agreed to participate in a crime. Well. Pretty much, I think what it comes down to, and that's the whole idea, like, you know, with the Patriot Act and, and the, the preemptive prosecution, um, the FBI's argumentation is that are we going to just wait for another 9-11 to happen? Like, we need to prevent the next 9-11. Um, and so they have used all this fear mongering and essentially all the rules, any like, you know, um, checks and balances, the, the, you know, um, what's it called? Um, just having like reasonable doubt or, or, or whatnot, um, has gone out the window and they've are able to target anyone that just gives them the slightest bit of suspicion. So obviously at that point, you're going to go after people that, you know, you profile or you deem as, um, threats. So that they get their their arrests and convictions based off of like their um, agreement on, uh, to go along with the plot. There's you know they they have like recordings of them like kind of saying okay like yeah sure like I'll do this. But mind you, a lot of them like I said are being manipulated, and so maybe they'll just say something but mean something else just because they're they're you know people pleasing or they're worried that this person's going to be mad at them that they've developed this close bond and connection with. Um, so yeah, no no crime is ever actually committed, but it it just comes down to um, different circumstances that they're able to convict on. Um, okay, so, but I think I think with these cases, they try to do it as okay, this is a plot, and they always have it as a conspiracy. So usually, it requires mm -hmm. more than one person participating, um, mm -hmm. but they'd have to take actual steps towards the crime. Right. Mm -hmm. Like what? Well, I mean, essentially, that's debatable. I think, like, like to the arrest them, they, the government like, has to show. Okay, well, they did A, B, C, and that's what you know how they're going. Whether it's well, to buy a flight to go overseas, or whether they went down to the local store to buy some ammunition, or mm -hmm. you know, but or yeah. picked up something, or mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like essentially sh sure that that ideally they would have something to go off of that, that, you know, puts them at the scene of the crime or, you know, having like full intention and ability to carry out whatever crime. But um, the reality is that that people, the government can just gets away with whatever it is that they said happened. Um, and essentially, like they get to... Um, place them wherever and, and say whatever. And actually there are many cases in which government officials actually do perjure themselves um, to get these convictions. But then you also have cases where, um, for example, the Holy Land 5 case, the very um, infamous Holy Land 5 case, 
where what's being criminally prosecuted is charity and um, you know giving um, money to Palestinians um, and and orphans and and so forth who are actually like in need and um, it just comes down to what the government deems to be um, threatening or um, an act of terrorism or, or, or supporting and sponsoring terrorism. Um, okay, so how does this, these type of cases, when they actually, because it seems like um, when they actually do happen and you're saying that, you know, you have a database of at least a thousand um, they have impacts on communities. Like you yourself said, when uh, mm-hmm. your cousin was arrested, you were eight years old, his image and you know was all over the news. How does that, how are these type of cases impacting these uh, Muslim communities or Arab communities um, when mm-hmm. you know they start getting into media and stuff, uh, where, the, where these arrests happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's honestly a plethora of impacts. And, and I really only scratch the surface um, when it comes to the terror trap report, the chapter that I wrote in there. Um, but really, I, I think like one thing to, to definitely highlight just as far as the broader impact outside of like the specific case itself and like the family is the fear um, that, that starts to, to course through the communities. Um, in, in my report or in, in my essay, I, I write um, about uh, the French philosopher Michael Foucault who, who basically um, explains this phenomenon as a panopticon effect. So now you no longer need to be, um, you know, it, it no longer has to be that there actually is someone watching you, but it's just this perceived threat um, that's unverifiable. You can't really verify if it's there or not. You don't know who it is. You don't know. It's like Big Brother. Um, it, they're watching. They could be, they could not be, but you just don't know. And so you start to police yourself and others. And so we become principles um, of our own um, oppression and we start to subject ourselves to basically just uh, silence and, and not standing up um, against this just out of fear of being um, one of these cases or being implicated um, in, in such a way. So it just drives the fear that people just start self-censoring. So do you think that that's Mm -hmm. the whole goal of uh, this policy or campaign to shut people up? Or is it to uh, increase the budgets to continue the... To continue the, uh, you know, the Patriot mm-hmm. Act. What? Why yeah. are they targeting Muslims? I think that there's there's many like goals per se. I do think that the silence aspect, or um, you know, instilling fear, prevents people from standing up and fighting back. Um, I think that like necessarily like why like why us or, or what what about us? Um, that's like you know definitely a, a big question to answer, and I think that there's like a lot of detail um, to it. But I do think that at the root of it, it's um, this uh, ability to to subject people to um, oppression and to keep people on their knees. Um, it, it puts the government in a position of power. It destabilizes our countries and our communities um, in, in a way that allows them to to have this hierarchy of power. Um, but I mean, I, I can definitely there. There's so many more reasons and, and more. Um, I guess impacts that I could discuss, um, and you know, we can go on forever. Okay, well, I mean, we can always have you back on. Um, how, how, do, how do, I mean, um, so what is your organization doing and why should the average American care about these, I mean, you know, types of cases? Most of them are not really getting touched, like impacted by it for now. Mm-hmm. Why should they care and question. what can they do about it? 
Mm-hmm. That's, those are both really good questions. I mean, I, and this is what I usually say is that while you're not impacted by it, um, especially if you're Muslim, Arab, or like, you know, it, within these communities, just know that you don't have to necessarily do anything um, to uh, be impacted. We actually have cases where the, uh, the the person did not even go along with the plot. There's actually one specific case where, where the person went and reported the informant to the FBI saying that this guy is going to do something and he's trying to get me to go along with it. Um, and this guy is serving a 30-year sentence. After, so, after trying to, to tell the FBI that yes, you know yes, somebody's trying he, to get me to be involved in something, he ends up, the one who reported it, ends up getting a Mm -hmm. 30-year sentence. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And so essentially what I say is that you should actually be more scared about not standing up and not fighting back because anybody, and it it could literally be any of you. It could be any of your family members. It could be any, like you you don't, you just don't know that. And um, so therefore, like, I, I just think it's definitely extremely important to get up and fight back. And as far as what it is that you can do, um, you can definitely visit our website, um, civilfreedoms.org to, to pull up this report and, you know, read more. There's, there's, we've barely scratched the surface, um, in this conversation, but you can definitely learn more. Um, and on, on our website, you'll see ways to support, um, you know, one of those ways is of course, donating, um, and, and, and helping us continue this work, um, through the financial means we provide legal support, um, and other services to the prisoners and the family members. Um, so we are doing that support, but how you can join is definitely by, um, volunteering or also joining our pen pal program. Um, I, I say like, like writing letters. Yeah, so basically you would, um, uh, by joining the program, I would uh, match you with one of our prisoners and um, you would be tasked with just, you know, corresponding with them socially. Um, a lot of these cases, um, you know, what, what we're fighting for isn't necessarily each of these cases. Some of them are pretty much set in stone and done and there's nothing um, necessarily that can be done um, just as far as like their legal situation is pretty fixed. Um, but the social aspect of prison is really the most difficult aspect of it all. And it's um, uh, this pen pal, um, just write, the simple act of writing letters is actually a very huge deal to these prisoners and means so much. And you will be doing so much more than you will ever actually know just by joining the program and, and maintaining like consistent correspondence. What do people write about? Like, what do you, what do anything and everything um anything and everything like these prisoners are are are, you know i i I, there's an intake form um which if you would like to sign up just go to bit.ly slash ccf pen pal um is there a link on your website for this i actually let me double check i'm not sure but if there isn't but there isn't a link to, I mean, click the contact us meaning can they find out more about Mm -hmm. this program through your website Yes, to yes, sign they up. can. Okay. Yeah, and definitely contact us um, through the submission form to to you know ask any questions if there are any. Um, so, are there any consequences for you know writing these prisoners? Are the, do the letters actually get there? Will they be read by mm-hmm. the authorities? 
Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely a bunch of things to consider. There are no consequences. No one's ever been actually at risk. Um, there's things that you can do to like keep yourself safe. I have a whole orientation that I will um, that I do with the pen pals before they start writing. So I kind of give you everything that you need to get started. Um, you won't be just like on your own to figure it out. I'm always here to like you know kind of double check um, anything that you need me to double check. I, I'll like review your first letter, for example. Um, you know, if you're, if you're nervous about it and kind of guide you through the process. But, um, I want to say it's, it's an extremely safe process, low risk. And, um, you know, I, I can, I meant, is questions. it safe from the government also perspective? Like, oh, will the government I, come I mean, after you Not necessarily, or bother not you, more, that, you know? not more or less than they would have otherwise. Um, I want to say as far as actually them, the way that if you are concerned about that, what you can do is you can um, write to them under a pseudonym so you don't even have to use your real name and um, maybe use a P.O. box or, a, you know, a separate address that might, you know, not necessarily be directly linked to you. Um, but, yeah, those are just ways that you, if you want to keep yourself anonymous and, um, you know, not um, identified by the prisoner or the government, then there, there are ways to do that. But there's so this is actual physical letters, not email. Yes. Well, actually, um, there are emails. So there are prisoners who do prefer email. There's core links. Um, so we do communicate with the prisoners via email. Um, it comes down to like the prisoner's um, financial ability as far as like, you know, uh, being on the email because they, they are charged. Um, oh, you're for charged for using they're... email? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're charged for literally breathing air. <laughs> In wow. prison. <laughs> I mean, you think the internet is going to be free? <laughs> I mean, they well, have so yeah. much time they could use it to learn, yeah. but they, what uh, is it? They charge them you, for using a computer or what? So pretty much, I think it, it works different from prison to prison. Um, um, I want to say federal prisons are, are mostly standard, but yeah, basically they do charge you based off of the time that you spend. Um, I think they're actually, I'm not sure where, but there are, might be some prisons where they charge you like by the email but um, yeah, I guess imagine being charged to send an email. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, we're out of time, so it was uh, great having you on. Hope to have you back it was on the great future. To be on. This, uh, Thank you so much. We've been speaking to Nina Debes from uh, Coalition for Civil Freedoms, their website, civilfreedoms.org. And uh, to learn more about their program and the pen pal program that she mentioned, this has been uh, True Talk on WMNF. NPR News is next, and after that, more more great programming from uh, WMF. Have a great weekend. Um, we'll be back next time, same place. Thank you again for all this, our listener supporters who helped us last week with our fun drive. Have a great weekend. <laughs> Nesco, tu entra, não ajuda, mas não dá, não te